what picture formed in your mind as you were hearing that passage from Colossians today? Maybe for you the picture was a kind of 1950s household, man sitting on a couch making a demand of his wife and the wife running around doing what he says. Perhaps you picture an overbearing father uh, always demanding obedience in everything from his children, wearing them down. Maybe you struggle to come up with any sort of image at all. I mean, it talks about slaves and masters. That's something so distant and remote from us. Whatever it is, I suspect for many of us, the picture that forms in our minds is an uncomfortable picture. It might feel icky. It could even feel dangerous. Doesn't a passage like this open up the door for any selfish and domineering man to just have his way? Could it close a door for a vulnerable wife or child that they would have no way out? These are very real questions and I hope that this evening we won't leave them easily dismissed. And yet over the last few weeks, we've all been struck, haven't we, by this beautiful picture of life in the church um, as we live as those who are united with Christ. We've been told of a church marked by foot-washing service of one another and joyful, grateful song. And so either the early church was living with this incredible tension of celebrating sacrificial love in the church and upholding an oppressive status quo in the home, or... Perhaps Paul is showing us the same hard but good reality of a life lived with and for Jesus. And he's showing us what that life with Jesus looks like for our families, just like he's been showing us what it looks like for the church. And if that's the case, then maybe there's beauty in these verses as well. Maybe there's good news in this passage for us here in Northbridge and even in places like Berkeley. But if that's the case, what we need is not me up here giving you theological arguments. What we really need is refreshed imaginations. And this will happen not by looking at the world around us and trying to fit this passage into what we see in the culture. And it's certainly not going to happen by looking back to some golden age of family values. Instead, what we need to do is look intently into God's Word, to the wisdom of the Scriptures and the example of Jesus, and ultimately we will need to run to the perfect love of God revealed in the cross. And it's my hope this evening that God would give us the eyes to see that Paul paints for us in these verses a beautiful picture of a household where Jesus is Lord. And that may still be uncomfortable, but I hope we will be able to say that it's beautiful as well. So let's begin by considering Paul's instructions to wives and husbands. To wives, he says, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. To husbands, he says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, of course, the elephant in the room is the word submit, isn't it? One person said in a home group to me this week, that word has a lot to answer for. And deep down, we might wish that it isn't there. But it is. And we need to refresh our imaginations 
so that we would see what's really going on here. And so I've printed for you a passage from the Song of Songs. Now, the Song of Songs is quite a strange book, but all you need to know for now is that it's a breathless and joy-filled song about the goodness of human marriage. And so this is what we read in chapter 2 of the song, as a woman sings of her beloved. She sings, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. And then down to verse 8. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the Bible's picture of marriage is not a dirge. It's an exuberant song. And so if we read Colossians as lifeless and oppressive, we're seeing the wrong thing. See, like the woman who sings this song, a wife's submission is like finding shade on a hot day or like the taste of a fresh apple picked right from the tree. She rejoices to receive the protection and the provision of her husband and the safety and the security that he freely gives to her. And then, like her beloved, the husband is called to lead his wife. But he leads her to a banquet. And so maybe he's the one who's prepared all the food. I don't know. He has a God-given authority, but his banner is one of love. He's not a raging bull, but he's a gentle gazelle. He doesn't burst in asserting his rights. Rather, he has a hushed reverence towards his wife. And when he speaks, it's not with commands or demands, but a call. Come to me. Let's serve together. And his words are filled with encouragement and affection. Colossians 3.19 is a fitting summary of that. He loves his wife and he is not harsh with her. And what's more, Song of Songs is a royal song. From the beginning of the Bible, husbands and wives are pictured as kings and queens that are moved out into the world together in service of the people around them. And here we get the sense that husbands are to be like priestly kings. They share God's blessings with their wife so that together they might share those blessings with the world. God has given to husbands the responsibility of setting the tone in their homes. He is to ensure that the peace of Christ rules, just as it does in the church. That the message of Christ would dwell richly with his family, just as it does in the church. And that the name of Christ would be honoured in his household, just as it is in the church. And by submitting to her husband, the wife honours and recognises the responsibility that her husband has been given. And she humbly receives his service. Rather than dismissing him or denying him or always demanding more from him, maybe dragging up all of his past failures, like the woman in the song, she expresses her delight for the way her husband loves her. 
And so, as the theologian Russell Moore says, the picture here is not a husband saying, woman, get me my chips. Nor is it a more sanctified version, like, blessed wife, get me my chips and then we will pray. It's not a man standing over his wife seeking to dominate her or making demands of her. It's not a Darwinian power struggle between man and woman. It's not even like a boardroom negotiation where the husband is family CEO and so he gets to have the last word. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, marriage is to be like a dance. A husband is to lead his wife gently but decisively so that his wife would shine. It's like a head and a body moving together in perfect coordination. It's a husband crucifying his own power and privilege in order to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And it's a wife humbly receiving her husband's service just as the church joyfully trusts in Christ. Just a few verses earlier in Colossians, we read that Christ is all and is in all. More than anything else, the gospel secures the absolute equality of men and women. But the question is, what will we do with that equality? And here, in Colossians, we're called away from focusing on our rights and what we deserve, that we would think first of our responsibility to love and to serve. See, when we focus on our rights, it leads to the finger-pointing and the blaming that has marred every marriage since Adam and Eve turned on each other in the garden. And here Paul is pressing us to say that our equality is not something to be used for our own advantage, but it's to be used for the good of our spouse. Husbands and wives are called to give each other far better than they deserve as a lived picture of God's lavish grace. Now, Song of Songs is a strange book to be sure, but it's a beautiful picture of what marriage looks like at its best. But even more than that, Christians have always read the song as what the Christian gospel looks like. As Paul says in a similar passage in Ephesians 5, the relationships between men and women in marriage is a deep mystery. I think it really is a bit of a mystery. And it's a mystery that models to us the sacrificial love of Jesus and the humble faith of the church. And so husbands and wives then are always learning from each other. A husband's service becomes an example to his wife that together they would serve in the church and in the world. And the wife's submission becomes an example of her husband as together they humble themselves before the Lord. Our marriages become little songs in which we're able to hear the song of Christ's love. And so, it breaks my heart that when we speak of this picture, it's necessary for us to address the ugly reality of domestic violence. See, surely one of the reasons we struggle to see beauty in this passage is that so often we fail to hear and obey this passage. I would suggest it's not the Bible that has a lot to answer for. We have a lot to answer for. What sadness that there are Christian homes where there is no peace. Where the message of Christ is not experienced as a rich blessing, but as a weapon. And where the name of Christ is not honoured, but dragged through the mud. 
And so, can I speak first to anyone here who may find themselves in such a household? Where there is not joyful song, but only fear, intimidation and control through physical or verbal or emotional abuse. And so, let me say this as clearly as I can. If you are a wife, submission does not require you to put up with abuse. If you are a husband, love does not mean you must stay in an unsafe place. Humble service does not require you to protect your abuser from the consequences of their sin. It's not your fault and Jesus is on your side. In fact, if submission is setting aside your own interests for the sake of another, then doing the very courageous thing of seeking help is in itself an act of humble service. It could be that removing yourself from harm's way may set your husband on the way of repentance. And so I've printed in the sermon outline today the details of several places where you might be able to find care and counsel. And in particular, can I invite you to speak to someone at church that you trust? You would be very welcome to come and find Simon or myself or Kath. We won't ignore you. We will listen to you. And as best as we can, we will practically help you. And then secondly, can I address any husbands who are using this passage as a weapon? Who pick it up and tell their wives to submit? Again, can I say this very clearly? You are not the Lord of your home. Jesus is. And to use his word to crush your wife is a terrible wickedness. And though you may be able to control your wife and though you may even be able to fool people like me, you won't fool Jesus. He is a king who is always standing with those who suffer and who always rises up to protect the downtrodden. It would be a fearful thing for you to face his judgment. And so can I urge you to repent of your sin. Give up your control and collapse into the arms of Christ that you might learn from him what it really means to be a man. And if that is you, will you have the courage to come and speak to Simon or me? We won't wink at your sin, we won't treat it lightly, but we will be willing to walk with you on the path of repentance. And then finally, can I speak to the men of our church more generally? Because I suspect that most men who've come to church today don't walk in as hypocritical Pharisees, but as exhausted disciples. You know, we hear so much about masculinity gone wrong in our culture, but I see a much broader and deeper malaise. Some men may express that in lashing out at those around them, but many more are passive and aloof. For every violent husband, there are husbands who are disengaged and withdrawn into their own little virtual worlds. They're selfishly satisfying their own pleasures through pornography or video games, and they're neglecting their high calling to serve those around them. Many Christian men too, I think, are weighed down by a sense of this responsibility and they carry burdens of guilt because of the ways they've failed in the past. 
If you might read a passage like Colossians 3 and think, submit to me? It's crazy. And dear brothers, that is exactly the place where we have to begin. Because the Lord Jesus can do far more with a man who limps than one who swaggers. And he says to us, come to me and find rest. Come and learn from my gentle and humble heart. Because if we're to be the men that God is calling us to be, if we're to be priestly kings who cause our wives to sing, then we will be men who live our lives on our knees. We'll get down on our knees before God in humble faith and we'll ask him to give us strength to serve. And then we'll live our whole lives on our knees in unceasing service of the people around us. I've been praying this week that our church would be filled with such men. Men who are free from the need to be in control. Men who know Jesus as their loving Lord. And men who are known in our church and in our community as those who pour themselves out in passionate, loving service of their families. May it be so among us for the honour of Christ. Deep breath. And I think we pray the same thing for relationships between children and parents, don't we? That Christ would be honoured in our families. And so let's turn again to Colossians. To children, Paul says, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. To parents, and specifically fathers, he says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. And again, if we look to the wisdom of the Scriptures, we're given a life-giving picture of what this looks like. This time from the book of Proverbs, another royal book as a king gives instruction to his son. So Proverbs 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure... Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair. Every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. See, I love that picture. It just assumes the fact that the world is challenging and confusing. And children, even teenagers, do you know this? You don't have everything you need to navigate your way through this world. And in my mind's eye, what I see is a parent here getting down onto the level of their son or daughter. And they're pointing out to them both the dangers and the delights of life in this world. And they're walking with them, steering them away from wickedness and guiding them towards righteousness. And they're not just giving rules for um, kids to follow, but they're helping to grow in the wisdom that they'll need for the rest of their lives to think and act rightly in the world. It's like kids and parents are on a treasure hunt together, looking for what they need to faithfully live for the Lord. And most wonderfully, the proverbial parent points beyond themselves to the instruction of the Lord. 
The godly fathers don't bear down upon their kids. They get down on their knees with them that together they would call out to God for insight and cry out for understanding. And so, yes, there will be frustrating or even infuriating moments for you kids when parents have to get you to do hard but good things or when they remove desirable but damaging things from your life. But the overall tone of such a family is not embittering but pleasant to the soul. There's not discouragement, but a filling up with courage so that boys and girls would grow up to be the royal children of the Lord, faithfully serving him in all they do. Once again, however, our families feel much more like cracked mirrors than they do a pure reflection of God's word. See, there's a reason, isn't there, why the absent and overbearing father is such a common theme in books and in movies. And you notice in so many kids' shows these days, the, the fathers just are dumb. See, there are kids, even in our church, who live life without a father. And there are single mothers who are seeking to do this work entirely on their own. There are children who go out into the world each day completely drained of strength because they're worn down in their homes. And no doubt there are parents who are filled with guilt at the things that they've said and done that have embittered or discouraged their children. And so it's fair to say that in our families we need a lot of grace. And there is grace to be found. I think there's grace to be found in the fact that the Bible takes the language of family and applies it to the whole church. So we even see that, that this instruction to families is to be read to the whole church. See, if you're not married, if you're a grown-up kid and you don't have kids yourself, the wives and the husbands and the children and the parents of our church, they need you. We need brothers and sisters to walk with families that they would be able to love and care for each other as God calls them to here. And we need spiritual mothers and fathers who can step into a void and offer the sweetness and the strength that the gospel brings. And we need as a church family together to weep and to mourn for all of our failures and rejoice for those times when we get it right. We can cry out to God's help together and call out for his grace. Because once again, our imperfect families are signposts to the divine family of God. In God, we have a perfect heavenly father. We find the rod and staff of his discipline to be a comfort for us as we walk through the valley of the shadow. He's the father who really did get down on our level as he sent his son down into the world. And he's the father who gives us his spirit. He fills us with the courage of Christ so that we might be able to live for him as his adopted sons and daughters. Now, in the end, children and parents, all of us, are but little children before the Lord. And we're all learning obedience and growing in maturity together that we would be more like Jesus, our older brother. Which leads us to the final picture in this passage of slaves and masters. And here we move from the wisdom of the scriptures to the example of Jesus. Because Jesus is our older brother, but he's also our master. And he's also our servant. Like a few weeks ago, I've printed a few verses there from John 13, that moment where Jesus stoops down to do the work of a slave. 
And it helps us to understand, I think, why today the imagery of slavery is just completely absurd to us. Because in these few verses from John 13, Jesus says, yeah, you're right, I am your Lord, I am your master. But in his actions, he shows them that following him means serving like him. And so the strange thing is Christian masters are called to become servants even of their own slaves. In the Roman world, a master could do pretty much as they pleased with their slaves, but not Christian masters. Colossians 4 verse 1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. But not only that, Christian slaves become the brothers and the sisters of their masters. In Christ, they too have the promise of a heavenly inheritance from God. Later in Colossians, we're told about a man who was called Onesimus. He was a runaway slave being sent back to the place he'd run away from. And Paul refers to him as our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. There really is no slave or free in Christ. And so Martin Luther would say centuries later, a Christian is a completely free Lord of all. And every Christian is a humble slave called to serve Jesus and everyone around them. And so Paul's words in Colossians are like a depth charge placed under the foundations of the institution of slavery so that in the end, the whole thing would just collapse into complete absurdity. The author Rebecca McLaughlin writes in answer to the question of whether the Bible condones slavery. Passages like this argue against slavery by cutting the legs out from under it. Jesus inhabited the slave role Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. He loves a runaway slave as his very heart and insists that slave and free are equal in Christ. With no room for superiority, exploitation or coercion, but rather brotherhood and shared identity, the New Testament created a tectonic tension that would ultimately erupt in the abolition of slavery. And this is a helpful place for us to finish because it does take us to the very heart of this passage. You see, the transformative power of Paul's words then and their transformative power for us here today is that what they do is they take powerful men off the throne and they place the Lord Jesus there. Do you notice the logic of Christ's lordship runs throughout this whole passage? Wives are to submit themselves as is fitting in the Lord. Children and slaves are to obey and serve in the Lord. See, Paul is painting a picture of a household ruled by Christ. And as we've seen, Jesus is a Lord with a gentle and humble heart. He is a master who lives to serve. Jesus is a king who does not rule with an iron fist, but with pierced hands and feet. He's the cosmic Christ and he holds everything together, but not with raw power, but by his shed blood. And so in all of this, God's ultimate goal is not to make us into real men and real women. He's not just wanting us to uphold family values. Rather, he's driving us away from ourselves towards one another and in the end, towards the cross. The picture of a family ruled by Jesus is one that looks like every husband and wife and child and parent carrying a cross in all of the stresses and strains of normal family life. 
And I would argue that that picture is just as uncomfortable and just as countercultural today as it was 2,000 years ago. When we do it, it will shine the light of the gospel into the world. And when we don't, even then our hearts are trained to long for Jesus. Because in all of the frustration and failure of our imperfect families, these verses point us to the comfort of the gospel. The comfort that in Christ, all of us have a perfect husband who is worthy of our perfect submission. And it's not a risk. And we have a perfect father who is worthy of our total obedience and its complete sweetness. And we have a master in heaven in whose service is our perfect freedom. And that, I think, is really beautiful. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us today. And we thank you that your word is not embittering or discouraging, but sweet and strengthening. And we pray that you would help all of us to go from here, thinking of how we may carry our cross um, in our families and in our households and as a church together. And I pray especially that if your spirit has been working on anyone's heart, that you've been prompting them to um, ask for help or to move forward in repentance, would you please continue that work and would you give them the courage that they need um, to speak to someone um, even before they leave today? And we ask that you would please continue to help us And we trust you because you have revealed your perfect love um, through Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.